Hello, comic creators. Welcome to this week's episode of the Commerce Connection podcast, where we discuss news and insights related to the creative and business side of publishing comics. I'm Gamal. He's Andy. Andy, how you doing? I'm good. How are things? Things are all right. Convention season is heating up. And so one of the main topics we will be talking about is tangentially related to comic book conventions. But I wanted to start off with some news, with the two pieces of news that broke kind of since our last podcast. The first one being uh, a bit of not so good news that um, I think you can speak to more cogently. IDW actually announced that they were delisting themselves from the stock exchange that they were listed on, and they let go about 40% of their staff. They announced that although they have several media deals in development and they are continuing to publish, they have very little um, operational revenue in the bank, and this restructuring was an attempt to kind of put things on the right path because they've had substantial losses over the past few years. Now, Andy, I have I have an outsider's quote-unquote expert view of what's going on, but um, why don't you why don't you share your thoughts first? Because yours are going to clearly be more interesting. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, the the first thing is that's always terrible news. People got laid off; they lost their livelihood, um, or at least part of it. Um, so that's that's terrible. So I think that's the first thing that we should mention is that you know we we uh, we hope that they find other work and land on their feet very quickly. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I mean, I used to work at IDW. Some of some of the folks affected. It's been uh, it's been ten years, I think, since uh, since I was there, a little over ten years. So certainly, I didn't know everybody that got laid off, but I've stayed in touch with a lot of those folks. And um, yeah, it just I mean, that's terrible. Um, I can't say that it was really surprising. Um, mm-hmm. And what you were saying about sort of, you know, their licensing deals and TV and movie deals are in the works. And then the WGA goes on strike last week. And um, that's probably not going to help them very much either. Um, That said, the reason I say it's not terribly surprising is they've been kind of hemorrhaging money for a while. They were on the New York Stock Exchange. So not like not like a small, a small Mm -hmm. one. I mean that's mm-hmm. a that's a big thing. So when your stock plummets to you know below a dollar for a while, they the writing's on the wall that they're probably going to delist you if you don't delist yourself. Um, so that's not that's not real helpful. So there's a lot of bad signs. Now sometimes a company can make big cuts like this and they cut back on other things and they're able to turn the business around. Um, They've made some moves in the last several years that apparently haven't worked out in trying to correct things, but their revenue has been down for quite some time. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously I hope they turn it around because there's still a lot of good people that are still there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's not real. I mean, I wish it were more surprised. There's one of those things like the moment it happens is shocking to read and shocking to see how many people are affected. Um, but then you take that step back and you're like, well, I've been watching these quarterly reports for a couple of years now show them usually operating on a loss 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you just got to wonder how long that's going to happen. Now, they're because they're publicly traded, they've got the board. And the board has restructured things. They've got a new CEO, a new COO. And um, so we'll see if they can turn it around. But from some of the editors that are still there that I've spoken with, they seem... Uh, they seem relatively optimistic about the future of the company. Mm-hmm. Um, I shouldn't even caveat that. They seem optimistic about the future of the company. But um, but beyond that, I don't have a whole lot more insider knowledge than that. Okay. Okay. Well, I'd, li- I'd like to just put things, put a couple things into context. First, that when we're talking, well, you, you did mention that IDW, because they're publicly traded, has actually been reporting that they've been you know operating at a loss for some time i think one of the major differences between most other comic book companies and idw is most other comic book companies are not publicly traded so they don't have to actually announce whether or not they're running at a loss but i would not be surprised if, if one if all of a sudden all the comic book companies had to announce how they were operating a lot of them would be operating at a loss. So it's not like IDW is some kind of outlier in in that regard. And the other piece, just to put it in historical context, IDW not doing well and delisting themselves from the New York Stock Exchange is, is not necessarily signaling like a total elimination of the company in the near future. I mean, Marvel has gone bankrupt at least once and maybe twice. So it's the kind of thing where they, their structure may change. The ownership may change. I actually saw a story that said IDW delisted themselves because the stock price had gone so low as they didn't want someone else to just come in with a very aggressive lowball offer and just buy the whole thing up because the stock was so low. Um, So I think, the other thing to look at with IDW is a, something that I we talk about a lot in Comics Connection, which is that the idea of having the goal of making TV shows or making movies from your comics as being the end-all, be-all to financial success, I think the IDW situation shows that that is not necessarily the case. IDW had several um, of their properties transition into shows. They had Lock and Key. They had, they had, yep, they had that one. They had, and they have like half a dozen of more shows in development. But the idea that you, that you get a show options, that you get a show purchased, that a show goes into development, or even that a show comes out is, does not necessarily mean a huge financial windfall of millions of dollars that will erase all of the losses that you may have had over several years. Like if you have a hit or if you have a few hits, and your deal is structured the right way, that actually changes your fortune considerably. But just because you get a show on the air or on streaming now, it's not the air. I've just showed that I, how old I am. Uh, just because you get a show out there doesn't mean that all of a sudden you have like all the money in the world because that's not the way it works when your comic book is used as the IP source for a TV show. Um, the other story that we wanted to cover, which was older news, was the um, announcement from Marvel that they were teaming up with a company called Clover Press to do a crowdfunding for an art book. 
which I believe is the first foray that Marvel is doing into crowdfunding. Um, Andy, you you are you are now getting into the crowdfunding game yourself. So, oh, yeah. how is this? Yeah. So, um, coincidentally, I guess um, Clover Press that is in that is doing this with uh, with Marvel is was founded. Uh, by two of the original founders of IDW who are no longer at IDW, uh, which I just thought was interesting that those are the two news mm-hmm. items that we're, we're discussing. Um, yeah, I mean, the reality is Marvel IP is going into crowdfunding. Marvel itself isn't. You know, Marvel's not saying, here's a crowdfunding to make the next issue of Spider-Man, right? That's not mm-hmm. happening. Marvel made a licensing deal with Clover Press. I'm sure Clover Press was upfront about their their desire to to go crowdfunding, right? I mean, they're not going to do that without Marvel knowing because it's probably a relationship with some value to it, just a guess. Um, but uh, so clearly Marvel had to approve that. But I'm sure Marvel was like, it's probably a bad look if Marvel or Disney goes directly to a crowdfunding platform. Mm-hmm. That's probably not a great look. But Clover Press is a smaller publisher. They do really good work. Um, they're very professional and them going a crowdfunding model, especially for a book that isn't just a comic book. So it's a book that has a much wider appeal. It's Marco Djurjevic's artwork, who's a phenomenal artist. I think that the appeal of his art goes beyond comics. Going to Kickstarter is at least 50% about the marketing of leveraging that community and Mm -hmm. how that community can pass a book around and it gets in front of a whole bunch of people it just wouldn't get in front of if you were marketing it to comic book retailers and and even the bookstore chains the larger bookstore chains so that seems like a really smart use of going the crowdfunding route to me um on clover press's part because they're going to get a lot more eyeballs on that book mm-hmm. uh, who are going to want it i think than if they didn't so less about trying to make that money from the, the crowdfunding, although, you know, they're likely, I haven't seen the campaign, I haven't looked at the campaign, um, but likely they are, uh, it's more like pre-orders for them. Like, hey, we've mm-hmm. pre-sold this many, but we've also, more importantly, gotten it in front of people that never even would have known it existed. So I think it's a really smart move. I think Marvel or whoever over there made the decision to give the thumbs up to that approach, I think made an intelligent business decision. I've seen a little bit of flack online, but it's mainly because people are misunderstanding and think Marvel is going directly to that platform. Um, Yes. Yeah. Well, the, I have actually seen a little bit of that pushback as well. And it was very, it echoed a lot of the pushback that happened when, Keanu Reeves had his book um, on crowdfunding about, I guess it's two years ago now. And with the, cause the idea is that crowdfunding is somehow a limited source of money. And if someone famous or a very well-known IP comes in, it will actually suck up all of the available money. And therefore there will not be any money left for everybody else who is using crowdfunding as one of their primary distribution channels. And I I don't think that that is actually the case. And I'm pretty sure that the financial evidence of 
what's going on in Kickstarter from year to year actually supports that contention. What's happening is a crowd the a number of crowdfunding projects that are successful every year on Kickstarter is constantly going up. I think they're close to like 75, 80% of all crowdfunding campaigns are actually successful. This means that if someone came in and kind of dominated the market, then you'd that success rate would drop significantly. I what I think is happening is the reverse. People who may not be familiar with or interested in crowdfunding might be brought to the platform because they know Marvel, because they know Keanu Reeves. And then once they're there and Kickstarter actually suggests to them other projects that are similar to the one that they backed, now you get a whole new crop of people going into crowdfunding and backing projects and supporting books that they would not have otherwise discovered if not for that watershed tentpole moment when a known IP or a known brand comes in. So I think for in general, it is actually a positive thing if Marvel teams up with someone like Clover Press. And I also think they part of the idea of Marvel not getting into crowdfunding is A, you're right, it's not a good look for Marvel because it's not like they're strapped for cash most of the time. Um, and B, they don't actually have in-house, to the best of my knowledge, anyone who actually has the skill set to manage that campaign anyway. Crowdfunding is, is a set of skills in and of itself. I'm sure that you realize this, running some crowdfunding campaigns on your own, that you, you can't just throw it up against the wall and assume because Spider-Man is on the cover, you're going to hit your target. There's a whole process that you have to actually understand and be relatively good at for these things to work out. And Marvel going with Clover Press, a company that's proven that they can do it multiple times over, makes a lot more sense than saying, hey, we can just do our own crowdfunding because realistically, at this point, you probably can't. So on both sides of the equation, I think it is a good move both for the two companies that are in the deal and everybody else who's actually in crowdfunding in general. So we shall see. All right. We got one more topic and that is the topic that you wanted to discuss like a week or two ago. Um, and it relates tangentially to, you know, convention season starting up and people wanting to kind of interact connect with people, get their projects off the ground, make connections and things like that. So Andy, I will let you I will let you explain the the topic for discussion. With convention season coming up and I guess there's not really a down season for conventions anymore. There's just the, mm -hmm. a bigger high season. Um a lot of folks go to conventions wanting to writers will go wanting to meet artists, artists to meet writers, everybody wants to talk to publishers get projects rolling, everything that you just said, right? And I have seen so many people approach this in really different ways. I thought it was worth talking about how to approach these things professionally, right? And it's okay to be at a show and be a fan of somebody's work. Um, there are still creators that I have seen at multiple shows over the last decade that, or two decades that I still kind of geek out when I see them a little bit, right? But I don't go full bore, 
right on mm -hmm. it but like it's really cool to see original art from from your favorite creators and and uh and that sort of thing and get a chance to actually talk with them but there are a couple of things that i think are worth mentioning one is uh maintain some level of calm uh is mm -hmm. helpful uh if you're if you're if you're in risk of of fanning out too much but also realize that different situations call for sort of different behavioral patterns and if you want to talk to somebody about doing professional work you need to put on sort of a uh, a professional um you know professional way to interact so by that there are a couple of things that you should understand uh, if you're a creator wanting to talk to other creators who are at their tables their tables are there for them to make some money. So they are trying to sell stuff at their table. They're trying to sell sketches that they're doing. They're trying to sell product. So if you get a chance to talk with somebody, A, don't monopolize their time too long. And B, if you can, once you've started a conversation, sort of stand to the side to allow people to still be able to see things on their table and for them to be able to interact with somebody and realize that, that your role is to, if, if there's an opportunity for them to sell something is to sort of step aside and let that happen. You don't have to try and hand sell something for them. They'll do that. Um, uh, in fact, I would recommend not getting involved in that transaction at all, but just sort of step to the side a little bit, let that transpire. Don't get a, get annoyed that you got interrupted because you're the one interrupting them selling stuff. So let that happen. That's okay. If you have the means, I would definitely recommend if you have a good conversation with somebody, find something to buy on their table. Um, that's always helpful. Everybody notices <laughs> when you buy something. Um, so there are just those sort of like sort of professional courtesies, that kind of thing. It doesn't have to be the biggest, most expensive item on the table, of course. But um, but it's it's helpful if you can if you can do that. Um, when talking with publishers and fewer publishers are showing up to conventions these days than they used to. It used to be a place where you could talk to multiple publishers. I went to see 2 e a while back. I think we talked about it on the podcast and there were almost no publishers. I think there were two publishers mm -hmm. um, that were there. But if you get the chance to talk to publishers, same sort of thing. Present yourself professionally, um, talk about what you want to do, but also ask questions of whomever you're talking to because the more information you get uh, about how, what other people's roles are, and you get information about how you can be helpful to them. And that's really your goal for the most part is making things easier on other people. You wanna be the person that that they like working with because A, it's not difficult to work with you. Um, and also it's usually easier to get people to talk about themselves and what they do, their role, uh, what they like about their work, what they like about their job, than it is for you to just sort of, you're just throwing your pitch or whatever into potentially a black hole. So get take the time to get to know people. Conventions are often not the place to pitch projects. Um, if that winds up happening by natural circumstances, then great. But uh, try not to be the person that's going around just trying to shove your pitch into everybody's hand that will listen to you. Um, the goal is to make contacts um, more than make sales, unless you're tabling, which case sales. Um, but yeah, um, you know, my, my sort of professional persona, I don't tend to swear. I try to speak in complete sentences, bathe, wear clean clothes. Uh, that matters. It's helpful. Um, you'd like to think that should go without saying, but it doesn't. 
it's worth saying. <laughs> um, so yeah, just it's it's all of those things. If you're showing a portfolio, if you're an artist, make sure that your portfolio is organized so that your most recent, which should hopefully be also your best work, is up front. So it's the first thing that I'm going to look at. Make sure that if you're looking to work in comics, that you've got sequential pages. Ideally, if you're drawing sequential pages, you'll have the script there with it. So that if I'm looking at it and I'm trying to determine if you're a good storyteller, I can look at the script and then look at how you interpreted it. That's really helpful. Same thing as if you're doing inks, if you want to show off your inks, show me a photocopy of the pencils that you were working from and then and then the inked page next to it. So I can compare, I can sort of see what you did with, with what you were, where you started and where you wound up. Um, same thing for coloring, show me the inks, show me the colors. Uh, art portfolio doesn't have to be that long, but it is nice if you if you can sort of show that you've been at it for a while. Um, but I would anything that you think is on the line of like maybe this isn't me on my best foot, just don't include it because it's not relevant anymore. If that's not the artist that you are now, don't put it in your por portfolio. Another thing I see artists do a lot is that they pigeonhole themselves on accident. Um, because they may think like, oh, you know, my coloring is really strong and I heard that there's a need for colorists, right? So they'll put a bunch of coloring samples in there and then they'll start getting hired for coloring work. And then it can sometimes be more difficult to convince people I'm more than a colorist. I'm actually a penciler and an inker. You can sort of pigeonhole yourself that way. So if you know specifically you want to do like this th one thing, there are other creators that want to do everything. They want to pencil, ink, color, and letter their own work, in which case present that in your portfolio um, by all means. Also, I see them, I see a lot of artists that'll go, I think this style is more commercial and will sell even though I don't like it very much. And then they get pigeonholed into a style that they don't actually really like doing. Um, so that can be uh, that can be a danger too. And I, I mean, it makes total sense, right? Because you, you're trying to start your own freelance business potentially and getting in there and getting work is your goal but make sure that you're getting work that you actually want to do. Mm -hmm. Hopefully mm -hmm. for reasons more than more than just the paycheck because you actually like the work. But those are yeah. those are really tough. Those are really tough things to to think about and to and to those are tough decisions to make, especially when you're just starting. Because a lot of us, myself included, when I was breaking in, I was like, I just need to get that first gig. I need to get that first gig. What's my best shot at getting that gig? Fortunately, in my case, I wound up getting in as an editor, which was something I really wanted to do. So in my case, the two overlapped and that worked out really nicely. But if if you're drawing pages that you don't like drawing to show at conventions to get work, they're going to hire you to draw that kind of stuff. So just be aware of, of what it is you're uh, you're putting out there. Yeah, I think I that's thing, actually... No, I think that's actually very important. And it segues into like a broader concept that in terms of like just demeanor and attitude, like there's a lot of comfort. There's a lot of industries where you can you can be a disagreeable, annoying individual because there's a lot of money in that work. So like if you're a banker, stockbroker, hedge fund, you could be you could be very annoying. You could be an asshole. Because the people around you know that the money that they're making is worth dealing with some people like you, right? Comics, there's not, people are not making millions of dollars in comics. Well, most of us are. 
I mean, a few of us are, but most of us are not. So there, we're in comics because we enjoy comics. We enjoy the medium, which means we want to actually enjoy the people that we are around, the people that we're working with, the people we're work interacting with. If you are the type of person that is difficult to deal with, whether it's just the way you present yourself or how difficult it is to actually communicate with you, people, comics is... There's enough struggle going on in comics, even if you're working with every, if you love everybody you're working with. The last thing you want to do is add people to your process that are difficult to work with. So to the extent that you can actually present and be someone that is prompt, professional, someone that is easy to work with, someone who is providing solutions and not problems, that is going to take you quite far in comics because People will seek you out because A, they know you're easy to work with, like Andy said, and B, they know if they need to get something done, because ultimately that's what people want. They want to see their books on the shelf. They want to see their sales numbers go up. If they know they come to you, that's more likely to happen than they will come to you. If they come, if they know they come to you and all they're going to get is problems and complaints and delays and everything else, they're not going to come to you for very long. And the comic book industry itself is very small. So word will get around that you may not be the right person to work with. And this may be regardless of your skill. You may be fantastic at the work you're doing. But if you are hard to work with, it's not going to make a difference because we're not hedge fund managers. We're not all making millions of dollars off of this. So we can't deal with the people who are hard to deal. Does that make sense? makes a lot of sense to me and also gives me terrible flashbacks. <laughs> terrible flashbacks of people you've interacted with or things that you've done? Uh, the former. I'm sure there are other editors that would have flashbacks of the latter. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely worked with people that were just really hard to work with. They're just very difficult or kind of mean-spirited or whatever. And then you're like, that work was good, but it wasn't good enough to keep up with that. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, and it's not I, like I it, would tell that to somebody. I'd just not hire them again. Exactly. That, and that's the key. If you have, if you have the, if people have that kind of negative experience with you, they will not tell you because all they, they know all that's going to happen is they're going to get more negative experience and they don't want that. So they will let the thing end on its own. And then you just won't hear from them again. And then you'll wonder why you're not getting any work. So keep in mind, it's nice to be important. It's more important to be nice. Well, there. I think we can end it on that. All right. Yeah. Well, so uh, this, is, this is going live soon. And we have got, or this is going to be uh, posted soon, right? And we've got yeah. a few courses starting next week. Uh, we got an introduction to comic book writing class, which I highly recommend. It's taught by Paul Aller. Um, and then we've got two advanced classes starting next week. Both have a prerequisite of an intro to coloring class and an intro to writing class before you could take them. But if you've taken those classes, advanced coloring by Soto, which is amazing, and he's retooled, um, and advanced writing, perfecting your one shot, which I'm teaching, is uh, starting next week. So those are those are both really exciting. 
are, are all three of those are exciting. I recommend and really recommend those highly. Fantastic. The links to all of those classes is going to be in the show notes along with a link to join us on Comics Connection, where we have our weekly classes, our Discord, and our video archive of all the different topics that we've covered in the business and creative side of publishing comics. So until the next time, have fun with your comics.